Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber and I'm sitting here with James Harkin, Anna Chizinski and Andrew Hunter-Murray. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you... Andy. My fact is that it takes 10 years to learn how to make artificial sushi. Okay? <laughs> Which is To make a, it well. To make it well, sorry. Any any mug can just <laughs> Wait, make... Anyone <laughs> could get some plasticine and make some fake sushi, right? You're absolutely right. So that's what you mean, like toy sushi? Not toy sushi, as in... So in, in Japan, there's this amazing tradition where basically all restaurants have their whole menu reproduced in plastic outside the restaurant to lure you in yes, to say yeah. how good this looks. Like when people, there's a place around the corner from us that um, is a restaurant and they cook one meal every day and they put it on a table outside and it's just a display oh, meal. Oh, yes, it's and a display I've, meal. I've yeah. always wanted to take that display meal because they put a whole pizza outside Yeah, and you think, why doesn't someone just come along and have this? I don't get it. I'm so close. How has someone not got that <laughs> They one must be closer? poisoned, right? And there's a glass of wine. <laughs> they must be. And there's a, gl- yeah, there's a glass of white wine just sitting there. We're going to take it, guys. You know who you are. Yeah. Have any of you it's... ever eaten in that restaurant? No. no. Oh, yes, I have. I have. There it's we go. That's great. It's kind of just um, society, isn't it? You just don't steal things. Yeah. But... I'm not saying it's a bad thing that people don't steal things right. in, gen- yeah. in general. It's a trust exercise. Yeah. But it will go to waste, won't it? Is it st- it's like taking something out of a bin. Which, <laughs> and we all do that. I guess. Anyway, so this yeah. is kind of like um, the equivalent of high street shops having mannequins in the window, completely displaying their clothes. This Apart is just... from all the clothes are fake. Yes, yes, yeah. and there's an actual industry devoted to making fake clothes, which yeah. no one will ever wear. Yeah, so, but you yeah. might make the clothes out of, say, toilet paper or something instead, because <laughs> yes. it's cheaper and it shows them off. Yeah. Or is it not cheaper? It's not cheaper. Oh. What? But there was an Economist article all about this, and then it turns out this is a massive thing. And I, because I was in Japan about five years ago and it's true it's basically every restaurant has this stuff outside it Mm. and the thing is buying these things is really expensive as in the sale price is about 20 times the price of the actual piece of sushi to buy a plastic piece of sushi yeah Mm. but then again it lasts a lot longer is the good thing and you're only buying one and you're only buying one but lots of train restaurants just hire them so you you can rent a burger for a month for a thousand yen no and have way. it outside because getting a whole menu done is cost thousands of pounds yeah. the equivalent of I was reading that actually a lot of the companies that make these things don't do very well in business because they are so <laughs> long lasting these things so once oh. you've sold it to someone then that bit of sushi lasts 10 years and so they keep mm. going out of business and so they're trying to sell them to China and to Europe now because yeah. everyone's mm. got them in Japan they should do what Apple do and make them break after two years. That's a very yeah. good yes. idea. Intentional obsolescence or whatever they call yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Or like football kits, they should make new ones every year, new kind of sushi. <laughs> so yeah. you always have to have the most trendy sushi outside your restaurant. That's what I was yeah. thinking. I wonder if there's a plastic sushi, sushi chef who's innovating new meals and releasing them and they're going, God, we've got to replicate this the, now. Yeah. Well, they don't, they don't really do that because the way they make these plastic imitations is so precise. So get this. They will send a designer to the restaurant where the food is made who will observe it, take lots of photos of the food, he'll make an architect's sketch and then he goes back to the factory and he says we have to make it precisely like this. Wow. And the, every individual piece is made with a mould. Okay, yeah. so he makes the mould first and then he... No, he, he visits the restaurant, yeah. sees the food, designs the mould, builds the mould and then presses a single 
amazing piece. Nice. So the mold for making a bit of tuna is actually made by pushing a bit of tuna oh, into really? the machine. What? Yeah. They use the fish to make the mold. I believe so. Wow. No, surely the fish would get squashed. Yeah. That's not going to retain its shape. This have is what I read. I agree. I agree. I have had sushi once. And <laughs> I. <laughs> One more time than you've had McDonald's, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. But no, it's incredibly precise. And 80% of the industry is one set of factories. It's one company, basically. Okay. Oh, wow. And all the rest is little cottage industries and workshops and artisans around that. But so why does it take 10 years to learn how to be a plastic sushi chef? It's very precise and it's a very artistic thing and to make it really good you know to be a master which is about as long as it takes to become a master sushi chef does so it? there are people out there who have both spent 10 years of their life i wonder if at a certain time at culinary school you have to decide if you're going to go into plastics or real yeah there must be a time and do you reckon it's the best ones who go into plastics or the slightly rubbish ones who don't get very good grades um the thing is they make these plastic vegetables and then they do cut them with real knives so it's like it's a, this bizarre proper chefing mixed with plastic chefing and they've been doing it for ages haven't they so yeah. i think it started in about the 1920s and it was because they didn't have menus and so instead of a menu you'd have this display uh, apparently that was easier i would have thought drawing something on a menu is easier <laughs> yeah but... crazy that that came first no, yeah they, they were getting new foods from the west as well so to explain what these are to your customers it's easier to have it on display outside because you can see like on a menu it could be any size for example whereas <laughs> you've had it molded no, <laughs> you can put something next to it for perspective exactly. yeah. next to every meal you could put like a little dog <laughs> and then you would know how big it was. But that's the thing, James. Dogs vary in size, famously. Ah, yeah. right. I should have chosen something more standard. Well, a that. plastic bit of sushi. Just put that next to it, and then that will show you next to your tuna sashimi what, how big that, your steak is. I was suggesting putting plastic sushi next to real sushi to give an impression of the no, size. No, next to real Western like oh, yeah, burgers okay. and stuff like that. That would be a good idea, yes. Um, have we ever said that sam- about salmon sashimi? No. The weird thing about it is that it's just not at all Japanese and that it was brought to Japan by Norway. Oh, really? Um, so people didn't eat salmon sashimi in Japan until the 1980s. <laughs> and then Norway had a shed load of fish that it couldn't sell and it had to offload. Really wanted to sort out its fishing industry. And they had a meeting with the Japanese and thought, well, this is a country that loves eating fish. And so they started offloading all their fish and selling it to Japan um, and trying to market it as sushi. And even then, so it was in about 1985 that they started eating salmon in Japan. Even then, it took about 10 years before they started eating it without cooking it. Wow. Isn't what, that weird? Yeah, do we know what brought the uh, the country to sort of shift the attitude? Uh, Norway just kept forcing it down their throat. <laughs> <I think. laughs> Fair enough. That is true. I think they just had loads of it to sell, didn't they? Yeah. And they just needed a new market for it. Yeah, yeah. okay. That, that is amazing. It's 1995. But I guess, even if you're used to eating raw tuna, it doesn't follow that you should eat raw salmon. Because so some yeah. people eat raw beef, yeah. don't they, in the, you know, when yeah. you have the steak all chopped up. But if you were to give someone raw chicken <laughs> or raw <laughs> yeah. pork... All chopped up. <laughs> all chopped up. It's not a natural thing. No, you're right. Yeah, it's a mad idea, actually. I don't know. You crack a raw egg on top of that. I'd probably give it a try. Raw chicken. Yeah. Raw, okay. <laughs> yeah. Probably just the once, but... <laughs> Um, actually, sushi isn't quite as old as you might think. Modern sushi, anyway. Oh. Um, the first kind of sushi was nare sushi, um, which is from the 3rd century BC. But that was basically just pickled fish. So you put the fish in a barrel with some rice and with some vinegar and leave it there for like a year. And then when it came out, it was pickled and, you know, it was edible. Um, but actually, they would also scrape all the rice off. So unlike this kind of sushi that we eat today, they would deliberately get rid of all the rice and only eat the fish part. That's amazing. So did the rice help pickle it? It helps the fermentation, yeah. Because if you ferment something, you need a carbohydrate to do that. 
Oh, so we're sort of eating the packaging when we eat sushi and rice. Yes, yeah. Did they eventually just get tired of scraping off the rice and a couple of grains of rice stayed on and then there were a few more grains of rice and then eventually (laughs) there was a massive lump of rice. I think what happened was the next one that came was Hanare Sushi and that was, they didn't leave it in the barrel for nearly as long. I think they probably got a bit bored of waiting for the sushi and so they would open the barrel a bit earlier and then they would eat the fish with the um, rice and my guess is and this is just a guess maybe it was a bit more sour a bit more pickly so that kind of took the edge off a bit I don't mm. know Okay. I'm guessing as well that they were always eating sashimi with a bowl of rice next to them they just hadn't combined the two as a single yeah. meal and eventually that, someone like, dropped one bit into the other and magic happened. Yeah, I think they would have combined it, as in they would have dropped sush- uh, sushi on top of their bowl of rice mm. and eaten the two together, like we do cornflakes into a bowl and then put milk in it, but you don't sell milk and cornflakes yeah, together. They should. Yeah. Exactly. Why don't should. they? Why because don't it, it goes soggy. They go soggy. Oh my god, it's such a bad idea. It's, don't do you, that. What an about face. In just a second or two. <laughs> quickest switcheroo I've like, ever heard. You'd be great on Dragon's Den, because I'm, so, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. No. <laughs> okay, well, just while we're on milk and cereal, so I was reading an article, this is kind of related, it's about how food is represented. There's an amazing Guardian article about the secrets of food photographers. Because in the West, we basically do this. We basically make artificial food in order to make it look good. Yeah. But we're doing it with real food. Like in advertising, you mean, and stuff. Yes, exactly like that. So strawberries get covered in lipstick. um, This is all from individual photographers. It's not like these are industry standards, but everyone has their own secret box of tricks. Um, Mexican food is sometimes sprayed with WD-40. The milk is almost never real milk when you see a bowl of milk and cereal on a cereal packet. What is it? It can be hair cream. It can be white glue. That's a big thing. And then you just shove the cornflakes into the top of it yeah, to yeah, make that, it look delicious. That makes sense. Um, sometimes, if you need steam, if you've got a pasta dish and yeah. steaming in a bowl, um, one photographer puts incense in there and lets it st- smoke away and then just removes the incense in post-production. Oh. And one photographer said she her method was to microwave wet tampons <laughs> and then put them behind the pasta oh so God. they were steaming. Wow. <laughs> is steam particularly unphotogenic on its own when it's naturally just yes. hot? Yes, yes it is. There <laughs> must be, there must is be milk a science unphotogenic? Well, they, I mean, this is, I mean, I think it's, it's quite well known that they do use different things in adverts. Yeah. I didn't know any of those examples, but I think that is quite well known. <laughs> yeah. John Lloyd, uh, for people listening, he's a guy who created QI. Um, he, d- he used to do a lot of adverts and he used to say that whenever he did a, a food product like a cereal or something, that in between takes, there was someone who would come and sort of move a Rice Krispie into a better spot of the bowl and like, you know, as if you were doing someone's makeup between takes. Do you remember when China hosted the Olympics and there was that girl who sung the solo, but they put another more attractive girl on the TV for it? Oh, It's a bit like that, but then it's more serious to do that than to change a Rice Krispie, I think. I guess the Rice Krispie doesn't mind as much. No one is pretending that this is a photo of a real bowl of rice krispies yeah they are they, they so are, are. I, actually james i can't see any difference <laughs> except that rice krispies they can't don't be, have feelings they don't have feelings yeah. and they, they can't be upset they don't have those faces and those costumes if you think they don't have feelings 
Yeah, then the advertising hasn't worked on you, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what they're trying to do? Because if I thought that Rice Krispies had feelings, I probably wouldn't want to eat them. Oh, wouldn't you? I think I would enjoy it more. As they screamed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so on sushi, um, sushi obviously depends on that seaweed that wraps around it to be made. Yeah. And so do you know basically the person who brought sushi to Japan, who made it a viable commercial product in Japan? No. Was it Mr. Nori? Because that's what it's called. Isn't it, it wasn't Mr. Nori. It was uh, Jack O'Nori. The Irish. Um, it wasn't that, though. Very good suggestion. Um, it was a woman, actually, who was from Lancashire. Uh, it was a woman called yeah. Kathleen Mary Drew Baker. Um, and she was um, studying the Welsh equivalent of nori, which is the Japanese seaweed that wraps around sushi. And in 1949, she discovered that this tiny algae was actually the larva of nori. And before that, no one in Japan had known how to farm it commercially because they hadn't been able to work out how to get it to propagate successfully. So so in Japan, they loved it. They loved sushi, but they couldn't sell it ever because they would eat little bits of it, but they couldn't farm it. Mm. And this woman just figured out this random thing. I think she was studying at Manchester at the time um, about Welsh seaweed, and they picked up on it, and suddenly it revolutionised sushi, mm. and it meant they had a sushi industry, and they now celebrate her. So she's this woman who no one in this country has heard of and who never visited Japan, um, is celebrated there. She's known as Mother of the Sea. Um, there's a festival <sighs> held in her honour every year in Osaka on April the 14th, and people go and they pray to her and they give offerings what? and they sing these special songs at this thing called the Drew Monument which is a monu- monument to her sounds like it should be a monument to you Drew no well that's not my name my name is Lightning so I don't know why everyone's um, Japanese restaurants still don't hire women sushi restaurants I think most of them don't hire this women this is in we're talking in Japan in Japan yeah, yeah. Sorry. When that I one time it, when I went to Itsu that one time because <laughs> 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 the woman was behind the counter they yeah. why, why don't they hire women do you I, mean the chefs as the chefs, yes, sorry. So I think oh. there's a superstition in Japan that women's body temperature is too high or there was a really... <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to cook that raw fish. Scientific fact. Simply by your touch. Good luck running your raw chicken restaurant, Anna, because that chicken's going to be fried. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact is that when Mount Vesuvius erupted, it created mini volcanoes in some people's heads. And look, this is okay. So first of all, it's not when you say in their heads. You don't mean they're thinking about it and it didn't really happen. <laughs> no, no, it was very much real. I, this is, I'm talking about the famous eruption um, in, oh God, 49? 79. Thank you. That's good, good that I wrote 1979. that 1979? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. It was glossed over by Thatcher's election win, but uh, <laughs> it happened. Um, so this is the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 AD. And um, it's the fact that I read about this in a review of a book called Caesar's Last Breath, which has just come out. It's by someone called Sam Keane. And it's about the history and the science of air yes yeah. sorry we i think we all pause because i think that's a familiar name yeah, he, he wrote he's the, written a book that we've got called yeah, the, the disappearing spoon I that's believe. it yeah, yeah, yeah really good about chemistry yeah, he's yeah, a great yeah. author yeah oh well this sounds incredible and i've ordered it and so he was wrote about this and he said that when vesuvius erupted uh, the heat made a hole in people's in some people's skulls and then because of the pressure and the heat the water in people's brains started to boil and then all the like chemicals and substances in their brain started to boil and they turned into a gas and then they were 
were ejected out of the little holes in their skulls. So they had these holes in their skulls that were ejecting steam it's, and other chemicals. And it's really gruesome, but it was 2,000 years ago, guys. So I think we can laugh about it now. It's amazing. It's really it's, grim. It's really grim. I know, but it's extraordinary, right? Because, like, what did it do? The, the heat burnt through the air, just through yeah. the skull, yeah. boiled and created a mini volcano so, erupting yeah. out of the people who were being killed by the volcano. Yes. That's insane. It sounds like, um, you know, in a cartoon when someone gets really mad. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And smoke comes out of their ears usually, but if they got really mad, maybe it would just burst out of their skull. Or skulls. it sounds like someone's um, microwaved a tampon and put it in their ears. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's I've never heard anything remotely like that happening. It's weird. And around. I just love the fact that he's obviously made that so it was all Sam Keen saying it created mini volcanoes. Because it's not a real heads. volcano, because it's not magma. It's not magma, no. And no. they're not large geological formations. <laughs> <laughs> but it did make people's heads steam. With yeah, the, it made the, them explode, didn't it? Let's it, be honest. It made them explode. Okay, but yeah. sorry, because there are lots of different stages, aren't there, of the explosion? So there was, mm-hmm. a, there, you know, part of it, people were being buried in ash, and then part of it, is this when the pyroclastic flow hit? This would be when it was at its hottest. So yes. I think it was a combination of that sudden heat and the sudden pressure okay. difference. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. And yeah. so this year, interestingly, um, scientists have pieced together bits of a skull that was blown up <gasps> in this way. Oh, wow. And they've oh, got goodness. all the bits together and they've put it um, through a computer system and they've managed to get a picture of the guy, what he would have looked like. Wow. And he just looks like a Mediterranean person who lived around that time. But it's amazing that they can get all the bits of skull that have yeah. exploded That's from a volcano in someone's head yeah. and then see what they look like. That's yeah. incredible. Because presumably with, a, with the explosion, it would have gone off into various places. So you'd have to be yeah. it, like um, mix-matching. Yeah, jigsawing. A, it's wow. like Funny Bones, that children's book. It's like the adult version oh, yeah. of that children's book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you know how they defended themselves in the initial stages what do you mean? Yeah. In the initial stages of the eruption. Oh, yeah. Um, so we're talking about, are we talking about rocks falling from the sky or are we talking about... Yeah, there have been earthquakes for a few days mm. and then there was a huge uh, explosion in the mountain and a mushroom cloud went up something like 20,000 metres. So there were little stones rattling around onto yeah. the ground and people would, people tied pillows onto their heads and walked around like no that. No way. Wow. Yeah. Ah. That was how they defended themselves. Wow. Do you know what that big mushroom cloud, those big plumes are called no. to uh, volcanologists. What? Uh, they are called Plinians. Oh, oh really? After yeah. Pliny? Yeah, which Pliny, though? Uh, the Elder. No, so the Elder famously died when he was so curious he got into a boat. The Younger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was only one other. The Older, Older. <laughs> um, Pliny the Younger. So he described the eruption when he was watching it as well. So it wasn't even just Pliny the Elder who who was trying to describe it. Pliny the Younger was back on land going, I'm going to describe this as well. He saw the giant plumes of uh, smoke that were erupting around it. He called them umbrella pines, and that's been lost. But as a tribute to him naming it, it's been Plinian. No way. That's amazing. Isn't it amazing that 2,000 years later, he's still Pliny the Younger? (laughs) He's not graduated. But younger, it doesn't matter how old you are, you're still younger. It doesn't mean you're young just because you're younger. That's true. But it's, it's like Kid Rock, isn't it? Oh, he's no, knocking no, on a bit now. He should change his name to Dad Rock now, shouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Did you, do you know what the um, clouds are called that form the clouds of kind of pollution that form around volcanoes? So obviously a lot of sulfur dioxide and lots of other gases come out of it and they react with the moisture in the air and with the oxygen and the debris and they form this, if it's daylight, they form this big cloud that you can't really see through and it's called a vog. 
Vog. Vog. Vog. Is that volcano yeah. fog? Well, it, as Wikipedia says, it's a portmanteau of volcano fog and smog. So I don't know which one the O comes from. <laughs> the O is from fog. Is the O from fog? Yeah. Okay, so the, the G, G is. is from smog. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, they call it that in Hawaii, I think. Okay. Yeah, as in they'll they'll say, oh, there's a lot of fog out there because it happens relatively regularly. Really? Yeah, I think so. Just, it's wow. a bit of a voggy day. Have you got your yeah. fog lights on? <laughs> <laughs> they think that um, Pompeii had a one-way traffic system. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. based on the wheel ruts and wow. the arrangement of it. I just think it's amazing that you can know that there was a one-way traffic system yeah. 2,000 years ago. Yeah. So I, I've been to Pompeii. Um, I went last year. Have, have you been to Pompeii, James? Mm, you okay. I went to a sushi restaurant once. But, uh, <laughs> I don't like to go on about it. <laughs> if you've not been to Pompeii and you are listening to this podcast right now, um, definitely go. It is genuinely the most exciting archaeological thing I've ever seen in my life. It feels like time travel because everything is still there, including the people, which is mad. You just walk around and there's this body of a person who was there on the day that it happened. That's, you don't see that anywhere else. So it's pretty amazing. The day that we went, I went with uh, my wife, Fenella, and um, she was really ill. So she took a lot of Lemsip and she had a lot of coffee and it was boiling hot and she started hallucinating. Here's another tip. If you want to hallucinate, you, want, you can't afford LSD, lem sip and coffee and heat. That's what you need to do. And it was crazy because there was all these dead bodies around, obviously. And so she was going nuts over it. You don't see the actual bodies, though, do you? You do. Yeah, they're in they're in the pottery they section. Plaster casts of the bodies, I think. They are. So what's happened is the but the people get buried, okay, and then they rot away, and then there's a hole where the body used to be. And then the way that they get them is they pour kind of concrete or something into it and then they pull it out as a cast of a person. Oh, I thought that that was so. them. You should have really read some of the information for that <laughs> while you're in Pompeii, oh, Dan. I you, tell you, you were what. off your nut on Lemsit, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I did read an information plaque. I was stuck on it for ages. And then I realised Pompeii doesn't have information plaques. And what I was reading was three different translations for how to use the recycling bin. <laughs> that was... <laughs> Um, so there are, there are really few um, household objects left behind and it's partly because people had 18 hours between eruption and the arrival of the huge hot cloud so most people had left uh, and taking whatever they could carry with them yeah. but also the reason there's nothing there is that people returned as soon as it was all over dug down you know, into the ruins and nicked what they could right. oh, really? and some of them fell in and died. So some of the bodies are those of looters whose tunnels collapsed. Wow. Do you know that there's a, d- a German prince who made a replica of Vesuvius? In, so this is in the 18th century. It was in 1794. And there was this guy called Prince Leopold III Friedrich Franz. And he took... Sounds German. It, it's the most German name you could have. Um, and Prince Leopold went travelling around, around Europe and he visited Vesuvius and thought, well, that's very impressive, this, this volcano they've got. Um, I'm going to build one when I get back home. <laughs> and he got back home and he built something that he called the Stone Island of Verlitz in the countryside near Berlin. And and it was a five-storey high kind of brick and stone building that he covered in all these boulders, so it looked like a volcano. And then he built a cone at the peak of it, and he put three fireplaces inside this, like, hollowed-out comb. Uh, and then he made this uh, crater, and he filled it with water, and he erected some red lamps. And then when he set the fires and tipped out the water, the red lamps illuminated the water, so it looked like lava running down his fake mountain. And him and his mates used to get together with some booze of an evening, and then they used to light the the fires and set off the volcano and watch Vesuvius erupt. 
That wow. is quite cool. Uh, I got one last thing, which is from Pompeii. It's uh, just to give a bit of insight into the type of people that live there, because it's hard to kind of picture their day-to-day activities. They discovered in the ruins uh, graffiti that's just remained on walls of various places. So they've translated a bunch of them that they could uh, still manage to make out the full sentences of. Uh, one reads, if you're going to fight, get out. And that's written on the side of a tavern wall that they had. Mm-hmm. Another reads, I don't care about your pregnancy, Silvilla. I despise it. And that's a private message. Um, I don't know how, because it would have been on that's a wall. That's a PM. <laughs> <Graffito>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Wall, I am amazed you haven't fallen into ruins since you bear the tedious scribblings of so many writers. <laughs> and that was found at four different walls there. That's, that's funny. That's like you get um, where people write on toilet walls, isn't it? They write stuff like that. Well, the mm. final one is a bit of a toilet wall. It's uh, Mertus. phone number. <laughs> Mertus, you suck well. And that was found at a brothel. <laughs> Uh, well, good you kept yourself busy while you were there, Dan. I can't believe Fenella let you have a pen. But... <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the first bendy straws were used by people in hospital. And why? Yeah. Well... I mean, it's a more convenient way to drink a drink, I guess, but why just in hospital? You've just answered your own question, Anna. <laughs> it's that, isn't it? It is. Okay. So I just kind of like this because I associate bendy straws more with fun times right. mm. and parties mm. and stuff. Um, but the guy who invented them, um, the first place that he managed to sell them was to a hospital. And like you say, it's so that people who are kind of lying down or not quite vertical can drink more easily. Yeah. Because before that, they would always drink out of glass straws. Glass. Oh wow! Yeah, <clears throat> that and that it comes with a risk. Yeah, but you're in a hospital, so that's true. Know, can't <laughs> think the, of a better place to eat the straw. Doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> it only comes with a risk to the extent that drinking out of a glass glass comes with a risk. I think that also comes with a risk. <laughs> you <laughs> only uh, ever drink out of beakers, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I have tippy cups. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what tippy cups. Yeah, is that know. one of those it's... things that a kid has with two handles on either side, it's... and they kind of? Oh, yeah, it's got yeah. two oh, handles yeah. and it's got a little spout, and also it's amazing because you can tilt it upside down and none of it falls out, even through the little spout. It's like oh. suck on a breast. That's why my kitchen cabinet's full of them, James. <laughs> um, so I've been reading about the, the plastic straw yes. apocalypse. So that's kind of why I wanted to talk about straws, because we should all stop bloody using them. Right. And our grandchildren won't have heard of them why? ever. What's they? happened? What's happened? They're made of plastic, mate. So is... Sushi. I know. Sushi. <laughs> but, you, but plastic can damage the environment. And the thing with straws is usually if you're in a bar or whatever, you get a straw, you kind of throw it away. It's mixed in with all the detritus and glass and whatever. Mm. And it's really hard to kind of try and take it out so you can recycle it. So no one recycles it. Uh, okay. So the problem is they're not being recycled. And what do you do? You have it for like, what, 30 seconds? Anna? How long does it take you to drink a gin and tonic? <laughs> But you have it only for like 10 minutes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You mean when I strawpedo them. Um, so 80% of the time it takes about a second, yeah. And sometimes they give you two straws. Yeah. Yes. They're completely pointless. Yeah. Do you want a stat, Dan? Uh, yeah, and can I just also just quickly say I do know that plastic is bad for the planet. I know. That was yeah. more, I was trying to work out why. And that makes sense because yeah. we do. I always throw straws just into anywhere. <laughs> Pigeons. I just throw them. <laughs> You're always buying packets of straws and chucking them about. Yeah. yeah. Um, Stats, please, Andy. Americans use 500 million straws a day. 
Wow. And there are only about 300 million Americans, so some people are having a couple of straws. more than one each. It's more than one each. And the total number used a day, some, there was an article about this which gave an amazing you know, comparison. It would fill 125 yellow American school buses each day. Wow. Full of straws. Wow. That's more than a mile long queue of American yellow school buses. And they're all, there's no children yeah. in them. They're all just full of straws, straws. Yeah. just straws. And each they, day, each day. It's a complete waste of buses. That's, it's a waste yeah, of I think buses. all the effort you have to go through to make the buses to keep the straws exactly. in. Exactly, and, and how are those kids getting on. to school? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can't carry on like this. I mean, the thing is, if we recycled them, maybe it wouldn't be so bad, but no one ever does, and mm. they're just completely pointless. Although I said this to you the other day, Anna, and you said you quite like a straw with a gin and tonic. I need straws, and I always ask for them if they don't give them to me in my gin and tonic. Otherwise, the ice gets in the way of the liquid, and so I push it too hard towards my mouth, and the <laughs> liquid goes all down my front. So I do actually need straws, but I'm not averse to like yeah. glass or metal could, or something. Would you be happy to have your own personal straw which I'd you carry love, around with you? I'd love that. I could get my initials engraved on it or something. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. I think we'll all have our own personal straws yeah. in the future. I think that's a really good call. And yeah, you could kind of have it hanging off your belt. Like people yes. used to have with a knife. Yeah. No one used to have a knife drawer. Mm-hmm. You'd just have a knife which you hung by your side. And you'd just what, walk. For, for dinner for or dinner. like Croc Dundee style? For dinner. Right. Yeah. You know the one that you're carrying around, would it be metal or would it be made of plastic? It'll be a metal one. Yeah. Otherwise, you can't really engrave in plastic. No, you're right. Through. <laughs> um, and then you can use it for an emergency tracheotomy. Because <laughs> oh, everyone yes. will always have one. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Um, so in other plastic news, plastic recycling news. So the bad thing about a lot of plastics is they end up in the ocean, right? We should mm. say. And they choke various animals. Well, I think you were saying that straws specifically go up turtles' noses, don't they? Well, when they? Dan's around, they do, yeah. <laughs> when he can't find any pigeons. Um, it was a, That does happen. And a couple of years ago, there was a video of one being extricated from a turtle's nose. And that was kind of the impetus that started this whole kind of, we need to stop having straws. Yeah. If you're in a bar, by the way, not if you're in a bar, but if you run a bar, get rid of your straws. If you're listening to this podcast in a bar, A, (laughs) talk to someone, but more importantly, (laughs) throw away your straw. Um, Actually, all bar one are banning them, aren't they? Yes, good for Uh, them. Yeah. So I think you won't be able to get plastic straws in all bar one very shortly because of this very reason. So, And and are they going to have no replacement? Yeah, people are just expected to drink stuff straight from the glass, which I agree is a travesty. Yeah. What, what are saying. your feelings on crazy straws? Uh, oh, are they the funny windy ones you get for birthday presents yeah. when you're a kid? Yeah, love them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, because you don't usually throw those away. You, those are keepers. No, you'd be mad to throw yeah, one of those Yeah, they're away. solid. They're hard plastic. Yeah. I was reading about crazy straws online because um, they, they believe deeply that it's more than just a straw, that it's a philosophy. What? Um, yeah. I was read an interview by the guy who invented the uh, crazy straw glasses. You know, the one where you... Oh, yeah. Yeah, classic. Yeah, classic. Uh, he said that... Um, we say it's a metaphor for life. Take extra time to go on a winding country road as opposed to the highway. That's how he sees the crazy straw industry. Okay. It's uh, not only are you uh, buying something more long term, but you are experiencing the drink in a more philosophical fashion. It's taking well. the scenic route. Yeah, it's the Buddha of straws. It reminds me a bit of, you know, that magazine that you get on the delayed gratification. Yes. Um, which you get the news like three months later. Yeah, it's, it's great. a bit like that because you're drinking your Coca Cola or whatever. Yeah, and there's a few seconds when it's not quite got to your mouth yet. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That you can kind of imagine what you're gonna yeah. taste. Yes, it's, uh, it's <laughs> that uh, we did we did it as a quote on QI in the very early episode. Stephen Fry quotes from James Bond saying the best martini of the day 
was the one just before the first one. It's the anticipation. Uh, oh, it's yeah. the yeah. It's the taste just before. By the way, mentioning delayed gratification, Andy got his latest copy the other day. Can you quickly <laughs> mention this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It came with a letter saying, "We're really sorry." This you probably have noticed this issue of delayed gratification has got to you a bit late. (laughs) None of the news is from before, I think, March. (laughs) You'd think the letter would be apologising if it came early. Yes, that's true. So, do you know, Dan, uh, how... Probably not. (laughs) What's the longest length of straw that you could drink out of? If I put a... Uh, say a can of beer on the floor yeah and i gave you as long a straw as you wanted but you had to suck from the top of it what is the tallest it could be i'm gonna say two floors (laughs) that's a lot two floors so how many meters are you saying um so that door is two meters oh okay um i'll say 16 meters uh the floors i'm talking about have a very high ceiling yeah (laughs) oh yeah because you live in versailles don't you yeah yeah Um, any guys do you think it's less or more than 16 metres or maybe there's an infinite amount maybe you mm. can I think it's going to be less than that so I guess you need to have enough to be making a vacuum in the straw that the water fills up to fill so it's just how long can I breathe in I think I can breathe in long enough to suck in three metres worth of air towards me up uh, no, so but, up. yeah wow. but the difference is with a straw you can you can pause you can take breaks as in, if I was sucking oh, yeah, on a straw, I could put my thumb over the straw and it will hang there. Yes. That's not going to lose it. I oh, can right. then pre and then re-suck. Yeah, but you once know? you've got all the air out of the straw, surely there's no you can't remove more air if there's a complete vacuum in the straw, right? So Andy is well on the route here. So okay. If so you had it? a perfect vacuum mm-hmm. sucking up, that's the best sucking you can do. You can't mm. do any better than that. Okay. And um, to get... If you're on Earth, so you have to pull it up against the atmospheric pressure, the highest is about 10 metres. If you had a vacuum, a perfect one. So obviously uh, humans couldn't do any more than that. 10 metres is cool. That's still high enough that I could be on the second floor of a building and get someone to deliver a drink to my door yeah. and pour my straw well, out if you live and in Versailles, of course. But, <laughs> but, um, the, inter- the reason that that's kind of interesting or kind of important is because if you're trying to, if you've got a mine mm. and you want to suck the water out of the mine so people can go down and dig for oh, rocks or whatever, ah. you can only suck it up to 10 metres. So anything lower than that, you need to do some pushing as well as sucking, which means you need an engine which is why in the Industrial Revolution you had all these people who were inventing engines like Watt and Newcomen and people like that because they needed to get this stuff up there without... Wow, so no, no matter how wide the straw, doesn't matter. 10 right. metres is the limit. Yeah. That is really wow. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is and so you think, here's the next question that you were just about to ask, Dan. Yeah. How do trees suck up water from the roots to the oh, top yeah. of the I was just thinking about... I was, cause I was saying a xylem in a plant must work like this. Yeah. Oh, can we work it out? Is it possible to be worked um, out? Um, no. Well, it's it. in this kind of thing, it's always the same answer. Okay, the butler did it. <laughs> it's capillary action. Oh. Okay. So if you get a really, 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 really thin... Um, straw kind of thing then there's another force that kind of sucks it up there and there's also the cohesion of water which means um, water molecules kind of pull on each other because they have surface tension oh, yes because they're hydro that is amazing so if the straw is thin enough it can be longer than 10 meters yes. is what we're saying if it's super super thin so like one of those tiny ones that you do get in a bar it's already hard to suck liquid out of those tiny yeah. ones I it think. Is, which is why they give you two Yes. I always thought they were just for show, like all for staring, which is why I think they should get bloody rid of them. I'm very excited that we might launch an anti-straw revolution 
Yeah. Uh. Big straw's going to come after us. <laughs> but the big straw can't be more than 10 metres. Yeah. All we need to do is go onto the third floor of a building. <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that bomb detectors in America work 16 times better when they are fitted with a fake dog nose on the end. <laughs> this is such a silly fact. But it's real. I know, I it's, know. It's but astonishing, it's, but it's isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah, so they uh, basically tested this out in America. They 3D printed out the nostril of a dog. And they stuck it onto the end of a bomb detector and they use the methods by which bomb detecting dogs use when they're sniffing for bombs. So a usual uh, bomb detector will sort of take in a bunch of air and it will analyze it. Dogs do quick sniffs. So they did that with this Mm. fake nose as well. They did these quick sniffs. And as a result, they found that it produced results that were 16 times better by having the weird nasal uh, structure of a dog on the end of their bomb detectors. Um, Yeah, because dogs, I didn't quite realise this about how dogs sniff and how they take in air, that they exhale in a completely different place to where they inhale, don't they? So that What? What? So they could probably play really long notes on a trumpet. Oh, yeah. They could do that didgeridoo. Yeah. Yeah. They'd be amazing at didgeridoos. Um, The way dogs breathe is that they um, inhale through their nostrils on the front of their nose. Mm -hmm. But if you look at any dog's nose, you would have seen, if you've got a dog, they've got these slits down the side of their nose. um, And that's where they exhale. So if you looked at a picture of a dog (laughs) now. What? They've got like a gill. I'm actually just going to show you. No way. Just super quickly. You would have seen it on every dog. I've never seen a dog. All dogs have different noses, though. They've all got this same nose. Like a pug has a different nose to a side view I, they've all got dog noses though they haven't they do they <laughs> I thought... none of them have like a human nose I'm going to look for a variety of dog noses okay oh, okay right so here you go Dan. yeah yeah look look at that all dog noses oh have wow this here and then that slit there yes yeah. yeah okay Anna is not lying we I'm can not, confirm. I'm not lying. All dog noses have this slit, and they've got this thing called an alar fold or an alar fold in their nose, and they inhale air, and then they pull the fold down so the air can't come back out the way it went in, right. and they exhale it out of the slit, and that makes their sense of smell much better because it kind of stops the air from being exhaled down the same channel that they're trying to breathe in more sense, so it stops it all getting mixed up together, uh, um, and it means they can smell all the incoming air more intensely and in a more concentrated so way. So that explains why this bomb detector kind of stuff works, right? Mm. Because it means that they're just passing loads and loads of air over it rather yeah. than bringing the same stuff in and blowing it out again. Exactly. I have never... That is the most surprising thing I've learned today. I know, I, I was really surprised I didn't yeah. ever think about that or even notice that slit in a, a dog's nose. A secret slit that we've not noticed, yeah. <laughs> secret slit. <laughs> um, I was reading in Australia, they have dogs that sniff out koalas. Um, <laughs> so there's, like, for example, there's one dog who in 2014, I think it was, called Maya, uh, was trained specifically to cover a 480-hectare bit of land in order to manage out where all the koalas were however she was not trained to smell out koalas themselves she was trained to smell out their feces so she would not disrupt the koalas and get into i guess any fights or scare them or whatever (laughs) she was just looking for the poo so her nostrils were trained specifically just for the feces as opposed to the koala this year there's another dog in australia that's been put into the same kind of role um and he is a dog called bear and so bear is also sniffing out koalas. Who but, calls a dog bear? Yeah, I know. 
Um, got, it's confusing. One, that, one that's looking for bears as well. Oh yeah, and he's looking for bears. Yeah, it's very confusing. Yeah. yeah. So, I've got a dog called Panda. Do you object to that? I do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're sat right here, so it's hard to say it to your face. But it's a stupid name. <laughs> Wait, he went for it. <laughs> you actually didn't even feel like you found it that hard. <laughs> yeah, but you can't just say that all dogs should be called dog no. if that's all like, I, don't, I don't think I was saying that the, the way of inventing that's why we have names is to differentiate things yeah. James isn't saying we call all dogs dog yeah. I think saying... there's a bit of a straw man argument going on here <laughs> I was just saying that you should give it a name which is not another animal but what do you object to them being given human names like Fred because well, I do object to that. I think it's lying yeah. about the fact that this is, this is a dog. It's so not, it's not you... lying. <laughs> I think it is a lie. First of, all, I... the, first of all, the secret slit, and now it turns like you're not even a human. <laughs> so I think there should be an approved list of dog names yeah. called Rover and Fido, and that's more or less it. Yeah. Ah. That's... Yeah, I think you should be able to pick from a list of ten dog names. Yeah, I haven't it. got them all worked out yet. You don't yet. need that many, do you? No. So humans need lots of names because you go into lots of different social situations where you need to know someone's name. Yeah. Most dogs are with their owner the whole time. I know, but if you're in a park and you go Rover, and the entire park's <laughs> worth of dogs, <laughs> it would only be a maximum of one in ten of the dogs in the park. <laughs> That's not how probability works. It wouldn't be a maximum of one in ten doctors' <laughs> called Rover. All right, all right. It would be a maximum of all of them, obviously, but the odds of it being all of them are very slim. There is a chance of it being none of them, of course. But that <laughs> relies on your dog having left the park and there being no other dogs in the park called Rover, which is also a possibility. <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> What the hell are we talking about? Bear has this ability, right? So check out the slits on Bear. He can sniff out not only um, a koala. So he's been trained not to sniff out the feces. He's been trained to sniff out the uh, hair of a koala bear, Mm. but the malted hair of a koala bear and fresh malted hair. So he's specifically going for hair that is not attached to a koala. Just so he's still... Yeah, isn't that amazing? I'm not... I didn't know that hair smelled different when it wasn't attached to you than when it was attached to you. What this might be is uh, another thing that dogs are really good at doing is separating smells. So they've got like a smell filing system um, in their noses. So what they might be doing is smelling that there's hair, but without the smell of the like flesh of a koala. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Because they've got this mucus in their nose. um, And the reason that their noses are wet, what it helps them do is like file away the smells into different parts of their nose. So certain molecules travel through the mucus faster than others. So it knows that the first molecule that gets to it, the bit that actually smells, is likely to be poo, whereas the second molecule that gets through is likely to be beef. And if a molecule takes ages, you know, it might be grass or something. So if you have pooey beef, it knows that it's pooey beef because it's gone yeah. through both of them. Precisely. Right. Whereas if it only gets the first smell that hits, it's That's just amazing. poo. Yeah. It's like an andor decision gate in a kind of a computer, right? Yeah. So you're yes. saying that it can it can get the hair and then gets the live. Um, koala yeah but if it only gets one of those two it knows that it's just the hair yeah. or just the exactly. shaved koala yeah so clever did you know that bloodhounds who have an amazing sense of smell smell with their ears <laughs> no stop it <laughs> yeah my dog has no nose how does he smell with his ears <laughs> Yep, that's how the joke should be told. It's not a joke, but it's the truth. Um, 
This is actually a bit of a stretch, but <laughs> this is the old Tushinsky special. Says something ridiculous and then backtracks immediately. Well, what they do is um, they've got these really long ears, bloodhounds, and you'll notice that their ears are placed further down their heads than most dogs. And they also have really, really droopy jowls and really lots of wrinkles. And what these all do is they trap scents and their ears are supposed to drag along the ground. So their ears scoop up lots of smells and then they get flicked and carried in the wrinkles of their skin because they're so flabby and up to their nose. No. So their ears are there to drag along the ground and pick up smells okay, for them. I think that's not far off, is it? That's that is so amazing. close. Yeah. It's okay, right? But how long does it take for them to smell something then? I guess sometimes it would take a while and then you've lost where the you've smell was. You've lost where it was, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, have a, I have one thing about bomb disposal. Yeah. yeah. It's just a headline from a local newspaper. This is in the Bristol Post. This is within the last month. And the headline is, Bomb Disposal Squad Called to Western Supermare Beach Only to Find a Really Big Plate. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bloke who found something metal on the beach. He started digging it up and it was huge. And he thought, oh, God, okay, this might be something really serious. And so he reburied it, phoned the bomb disposal squad. They arrived. That was a plate. Who's taking such a huge plate to the beach? It's like a platter for sandwiches, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And it would look like the top of a mine. Completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. Not, a, not a crazy decision to make. Yeah. But with hindsight, it turns out to have been funny. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James. At Eggshaped. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Jasinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at QI Podcast, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have links to the tickets for our upcoming tour up there. You can get a link to the book that we're releasing in November called Book of the Year, and you can also get our new mug. But the big thing that we hope you join us for is next Monday, Facebook Live. We will be dissecting this episode, talking about all the facts that we didn't manage to get in. And please, if you were thinking of anything you wanted to add to this episode, bring it to the facebook live and put it in the comment bar and we will talk about it so that's mondays go to our facebook page to see the exact time we'll see you there and see you again next week with another episode goodbye